In our culture, everything is based on success. But what is success and who to find it? That's the big question. Is it measurable? Can you obtain it? Can you dream it? Can you hold it? I'm on a quest to redefine how we view success, and I'd like to bring you on this journey. Welcome to Be Fulfilled. Welcome to Be Fulfilled. It's the real stories behind success. You imagine if you took money off the table. I wonder what today's guest is going to have to say with his answer coming up in just a couple minutes. My name is Tony Grubmeyer. This is episode number 42. It's Be Fulfilled. And our guest is the CEO of Smart Marketer. He's also a partner at Boom Cosmetics and the company's head of digital marketing. He owns a network e-commerce brand and regularly consults for companies across the U.S. and Canada. He is the founder of Zipify, a Shopify app creation company. Company. Please welcome to the show, Ezra Firestone. Oh, yeah. Let me see if I can do my own version of a radio voice. It does not sound anywhere near as good as yours. <laughs> but, hey, uh, but it's sexy and I don't have my hair up in a bun, so you uh, win. There you go. All uh, right. Thank so, you for having me on, man. Thank you. Oh, man. It's an absolute honor. And, and what I love is we had a pre-conversation and everybody asked me, why don't you launch those? I'm like, because that's our intimacy moment. That's where we got to kind of center ourselves and get connected. Mm. And I told you before the show a little bit about anytime I get around you, there's a frequency that gets hit when they're talking to you. I feel that there's a huge shift in me. It's a centering mechanism. So what I want to do is we get ready to stretch and go up Success Mountain today. I'll Sherpa us up to the top. The question really to help us kind of set the tone for the show is what is your definition of success? My definition of success is I label myself as a responsible hedonist. So basically like I'm a pleasure seeker and I think that I think that success is a much more popular but ultimately less fulfilling game than having fun and I think that ultimately you end up being much more successful if you are having fun along the way. So my definition of success is am I having fun in my life? And the most important thing to me in my world is my relationship with my wife. That's actually my number one priority. That's actually my big hustle and what I'm doing in the world. And all my businesses are in support of that. And so what I'm striving for is connection, intimacy, fulfilled relationships with friends, family, an active social life, hobbies that I love. And also, I'd like to have a lot of resource that I can leverage towards causes that I find noble. And my version of generating resource is running profitable businesses that kick off money, which my viewpoint is money has no value. It's just something that we trade for things that we think are valuable. And I've figured out wealth creation. A lot of people are victimized by money. Like I I feel like people are victimized by basically money, sex, time, religion, politics, and other people. Those are kind of like the six big victimizations that people run. Anyways, to answer your actual question, my definition of success is whether or not I am having fun in my life on a daily basis and whether or not my relationships are expressed and fulfilled and I'm enjoying them. I love it. I mean, you said pleasure seeker. You said a lot. If I unpacked it all right now, we could be done with the episode because what you said was, I got to slow down because I got to remember if I'm not having fun, I'm doing it wrong. My wife is my number one. I build all my businesses around there to make sure that I can support not only myself, but honor my wife. And then we, then you deeped in really quick to like some of the things around religion. We talk about money and finances. So what I want to do is pause, shift all the way kind of to get to know you from just a, a little bit of a standpoint. Give me your version that the world maybe doesn't know, or maybe the world does know about your upbringing Mm. And bring us fast so we can, I want to sprint with you because I think you're already (laughs) unwound, ready to go. And I'm like, okay, I'm just going to warm up a few Uh, more minutes. 
Listen, I had a very unique upbringing. I was raised in an alternative lifestyle experiment. So it's a group of people who sort of uh, bucked the status quo of suburban lifestyle back in the 60s and 70s and decided that they wanted to live in a group and focus on it was essentially what we would label today as an intentional community. Now, I, now, a lot of times when I talk about this, people are like, whoa, so you were raised in a cult? And so I'd like to quickly define the difference between a cult and an intentional community. So a cult, in my opinion, is something that is very easy to get into and very hard to get out of. An intentional community is something that is very hard to get into and very easy to get out of, right? So generally, intentional communities, you have to like figure out some way to join that thing. And a lot of them ask you to subscribe to a particular ideology, ask you to subscribe to a particular dogma, ask you to subscribe to a particular set of viewpoints before you can join that group. And the group that I grew up in was much different. They didn't ask you to subscribe to any particular set of viewpoints to be a part of it, right? It was a, it was a group of folks who were flower children, hippies, you know, who didn't who were not being successful and, you know, felt like the average, I'm going to go work a nine to five and, you know, basically spend my life doing something I don't enjoy to make money, to buy things I don't actually need. Like they were not into that. And so it's a long story, but the point is that I was raised around a bunch of alternative viewpoints. And the goal of this place really was to explore what it takes to live pleasurably as a group. And they are of the thousands of communal living situations that popped up in the late 60s and early 70s, there's like five that are left after 50 years. This is literally our 50-year anniversary uh, coming up in August, and this group is one of them. And, and so what they've been exploring is how do you successfully navigate relationships, not just relationships across the gender line, but relationships with friends and family and colleagues and you know, things come up in relationship, jealousy, money, possessions, communication, sensuality, all the stuff, right? And if you fail, at any one of those things, you're going to fail at the relationship. And what's interesting about our society is if you just look at relationships on the whole, for the most part, they're failing, right? Most marriages end up in divorce. The ones that don't end up in divorce have a very high rate of cheating or emotional cheating. You know what I mean? Like it's like people are not winning at relating with one another. There's constant fighting in families who have money. It's just like this crazy thing. People have not figured out how to win at relationship. And ultimately, at least from what I've learned and my experience now, having been married now for six years with my wife for 10 and a half, and I'm pretty young, you know, we got together young, kind of grew up together, which was fun. And also, you know, having now a team of 70 people in my businesses, a good portion of whom are family, friends, cousins, friends of friends, is that to be successful in a relationship, you need one skill set, and that is communication. And the better communicator you are, the better you're going to fare in your relationships. And also what's interesting that I've learned about business, I feel like my alternative views on the world have really helped me in business is that conversion, which is what all these business people are chasing, right? Getting someone to actually buy from them comes down to your ability to effectively communicate the value you have to offer to that prospect. So my communication background is really what has allowed me to build and scale several multi-million and now one eight-figure business that'll do 25 million this year. And that sounds all fancy, but I'm just like some random dude off a couch in Brooklyn, you know, who was, who was able to do this. So if I can do this, anyone can. And, and really, I think the skill set that you want to focus on as a human being is communication. It's really served me well. We walked out of a meeting today with my business partners and our consultant. And that was the only thing we really focused on in the entire meeting was communication, yeah. right? Three partners, all kind of the same, grew up in the same neighborhood, all kind of went to the same school, all went off to college. And I didn't really succeed in the college bucket because <laughs> education for me is not sitting in a school being told what to do is figuring out what I wanted to do and then going mm. pursuing that with passion. Totally. And 
we walked around and I said, look, the ship's sailing. Either the anchors are down because people are causing problems. And if that's the reason, then there was poor communication. We need to get as many of the anchors out of the water and get the ship sailing towards the port that it was destined to go to. Mm. So I want to figure this all out. So you go to, you're in a community, you're in something where you literally see through the lens of what now you see the world. And then you're faced with trying to build a business, having all of these things around you. There's no yeah, problem. I mean, this, what's interesting about that is the one, so I felt like the group I grew up in, I went to public school. I did the whole, I just came sure. back to intentional community. I was a normal person in society. Just, I didn't go live. I wasn't living in the suburbs. I was living like on a commune, you know? So I got access to a bunch of folks who had different viewpoints than the parents of the kids at my schools, right? But one of the things that we didn't really have figured out was money. I mean, the power would turn off, the water would go out. We were broke, man. We didn't have cash. And we were very rich with on love, which I think is actually better than being rich with material possessions. But I remember very specifically at this one like property-wide meeting where we were like the water had gone out again and the power had gone out again being like, all right, like I'm going to solve this problem. I can figure this out. Okay. I'm going to figure out how to make money because that seems to be like the thing that we do not have as a group figured out. So I got started on the desire to tackle the subject of wealth creation at a very young age. And I always had a hustle, man. I was always selling someone something. You know, the way we made money was we sold stuff at the flea market. So we'd get like, you know, You'd have like the Super Bowl and two teams are in it and they print shirts for both teams in case one of them wins. And then like the team that doesn't win, we get those shirts to sell at the flea market, you know? So we had that kind of thing. So I don't know where I'm going with this other than that. I started being interested in selling people stuff at a very early age. And kind of what I came to realize later in life is that like, we're always selling, we're selling our ideas to people. We're selling people that we would be valuable to hang out with. Like we're constantly selling people things. And so I actually think it's a really noble act and I think that there's ways to do it with integrity and purpose and intention that aren't sleazy. I think sales has such a negative rap in our sort of anti-capitalist society right now, but I'm, I am very pro selling. <laughs> I think no, selling. I think it's great, right? We like to say like abs, always be selling, right? And I say always be sharing because first when you're sharing with people, you're figuring out their pulse. When did you really know that you had that skill? Was it selling t-shirts that weren't from the winning team that you could just help people to see, hey, look, here's value. I'm giving you a shirt. It's on your back. It may not be what you want, but hey, at least yeah, it's- I mean, I would be like split testing crayon versus marker at the, at the, you know what I mean? On my signs, like I was always into it. I was deep. And I, I actually moved to New York City to become a professional poker player when I was 18. I failed out of, I basically barely made it out of high school. I had like a really, like maybe a sub 1.0 GPA. I failed out of junior college because they don't let you stick around if you miss the classes, you know? I had a fake ID, so I'd always be at the casino. Mm. Because poker in America got really popular, like right when I was sort of a young teenager. It was all over ESPN. It got, you know, there was the party poker and, you know, full tilt and these online poker things. And so I'm a big fan of learning from people who know like, I feel like once you think you know everything, that's when you're hosed. And so when I decide that I want to, I think the skill set that you want as a human being is the skill set of mastery. That's it. Oh, yeah. Skill set is the willingness to put your attention consistently in one area over time. Pick up an instrument, play it 30 minutes a day, you're going to get better at it. And so I always kind of knew or had this viewpoint that like, if I wanted to excel at something, it was going to take dedicated attention over time. And so when I wanted to learn poker, because I was like, oh, here's a way I can make money. I read a bunch of books and I got really good at a young age. And I would make, I was making a whole bunch of money on the internet at like 13 playing poker. And so I moved to New York to play poker. And that's a whole other story. And I did quite well. It was really fun. 
And one of the things that I learned at that time was that the people like, so my goal, my stated goal was the generation of wealth. So I could take care of my family and my community and have resource to direct towards other causes that I found noble, like not letting the rainforest be taken out for palm oil. And you know what I mean? Like I have ideas around what I think it would be cool to use resource for. And so I realized that like poker was fun, but it had two big problems. One was that it was trading time for money. And the more I learned about wealth creation, the more I learned that my direct time in exchange for some amount of money for that time was never going to result in me making the amount of money that I wanted, that I thought I wanted anyways, right? I I later came to realize that money can't buy you happiness. It can only buy you comfort. That's a whole other conversation. But basically, so I learned through that, that like I need some kind of system that will generate resource ongoingly and be able to scale beyond my personal time. You know, because poker, you're staying up all night, you're sleeping all day, you're under fluorescent lights, eating butterfingers with a bunch of degenerates. You know what I mean? There's no (laughs) men around. Everyone's got a pot belly, slick back hair, gold chains. It's just a terrible environment. And uh, there was no women. And that was a big problem for me because I also had the stated agenda of meeting girls. I was like, I am moving to New York because I would like to meet women and make money. This was my agenda, right? And I realized that poker was not the best, <laughs> best strategy for either of those. I get the visual of you eating chips, you know, playing two o'clock in the morning. And where are the girls? Like one of the days you just had to wake so up saying. I, I also thought at that time that you needed to be a certain kind of guy. Like, like I wanted to be, I was the jumpsuit guy. Like I went to China with this Qigong master to, uh, you know, go back to his homeland and stuff. It was a whole thing about this Qigong. He was really cool. But anyways, when I was in China, I found all these knockoff jumpsuits for like a dollar. So I bought like 15 pairs of different colored jumpsuits. And I was that guy who you only ever saw in a jumpsuit. I was the jumpsuit guy. For some reason, I thought that was really cool. That was my look. You know, it's how I stood out. And it was when jumpsuits were in, man. Jumpsuits had a resurgence into pop culture around that time, 04, 05, you know. I don't know where I'm going with this. No, it's so funny. So I got to ask, if you were studying back then and learning from the top poker players, did you have somebody that you followed or like you studied? Yes, I read every book there was available on it. I probably, you know, I did my, like, there's a couple things I've mastered in my life. I like to think that my big skill set in the world is the ability to read someone's emotional state, whether or not they're interested in me doing so, whether or not they're hiding how they actually feel. I've always been empathetic, if you will. I, I can feel where people are at emotionally. And that has always served me to be able to communicate with them in a way that would land. Because I feel like for communication, it's not what you say, it's what they hear. People will be like, I communicated, I said it. And it's like, no, dude, your communication landed like eh, right in front of their nose. They never actually got it, you know, it never made it to them. So you have to take responsibility for them hearing you. That is communication. And so that's always been a big skill set of mine. I've been working on that my whole life. So I've mastered the ability to be able to feel and see where someone is at. The other thing I've mastered is poker. And now I've, I've mastered a few other things. Grappling is one of the things that I have some level of mastery over. I've done it for about 25 years and internet marketing, digital marketing is another. And so what was your question? Because I had a- Just a player that you kind of best represented like Oh, watching. so, okay. So for a while it was Phil Hellmuth because his book was a book on pot limit Texas Hold'em. It was called Play Poker Like the Pros. And that book is what made me a good poker player. And then I read Doyle Brunson's Super System and Super System 2. And then I read Barry Greenstein's Ace on the River. And then I read a bunch of Howard Letterer books. And I read every, I just read everything. And there was one book in particular that I felt like I got just an immense amount of value from where like, you know, one of these things about mastery is right when you feel like you know something, 
you then get hit with like how much you don't know or just like little refinements. And it's sort of like jujitsu or poker or internet marketing or communication. They're like these lifelong practices that only get broader and you only see how much more there is once you feel like you start to learn a little bit about, you think you know something and then you learn what you, you know, so much you don't know. And it's always like a really beautiful thing to see how endless these processes are. And so anyways, from this book, Ace on the River, he suggested this one little tweak made me a lot of money was he suggested waiting until the games were like two to three hours from over. So letting people get on tilt, letting people get loose, letting people drink a little, showing up just a few hours before the game was going to close, coming in rested, deliberate, energetic, and playing at that last little cycle of the game where everyone was just wiling out and you were the one solid player. And that served me really well. I would show up to this game around midnight and the game would usually break around like 3 a.m. And it had been going since like 3 p.m. So I'd show up nine hours into a 12-hour cycle. And that was a really beneficial process because in poker in particular, it's about timing, right? And I feel like a lot of life comes down to timing, but I understood how to leverage timing to my benefit. And that was, that served me really well. Yeah. I mean, what would you say that's applicable in your business process of, you know, offers and conversions and everything? I mean, coming in at the right time. So I think that they say that the fortune is in the follow-up, right? And so understanding, like, for example, one of the things we do now is we used to just like, if someone visited our product page and then they left, we would retarget them with the same ad for 14 days. Now we will retarget like, you know, if they visit the product offer page and then they leave for the first three days, they'll see testimonial one for the next three days. They'll see testimonial two for the next three days. They'll see a one minute demonstration of ownership benefit of the product. Like, so every two to three days we're refreshing the creative. And now it's not just 14 days of the same ad. It's 14 days of a journey of different communications of why they might want to, you know, take us up on this offer. It's a, you know, and the way we do that is we make an audience in Facebook, three-day audience, six-day audience, nine-day audience, 12-day audience, 15-day audience. And then we exclude three days from six days, six days from nine days. So it's only those people in that particular, you know, between day three and day six that are going to see the second testimonial, for example. What was your first real, real success that you found online where you go, man, I got something? I sold a Fu Manchu mustache in August of 2008, and I thought to myself, I have made it. I am now an internet king. No, no. But basically what happened was like- um, In the jumper too that you bought back from China, right? I, I actually probably was wearing that when I sold this thing. Now, that would have been a couple of years later. So I believe my first sale was either August of 07 or August of 08. I started online in 05, and I ran other people's companies for a couple of years doing advertising and landing page optimization and SEO, which was the traffic source of the day all that kind of stuff back then until I realized that like it would be better if I sold my own stuff instead of other people's stuff, you know? And so I started with costume wigs. I actually hold the title of most mullet wigs sold in a year for a couple of years there. I sold Afro wigs, Elvis wigs. I sold everything. And that business, the wig business during my first wig season, which was October, October was wig season. You know, you'd order (laughs) Ethiopian food three times a day and just like ship out hundreds of costume wigs off your East Village apartment floor. And my wife literally would flee the state. She'd be like, I'm going to Texas for a month. You do wig. I'm not, I'm not sticking around for wig season. It's too crazy. But anyways, I made 16 grand in sales in that first wig season, that first October with the worst looking website, no idea what I was doing, like just you know, and I think it's like people want to be perfectionists. And one of the things that's really served me well is I will start moving and then I'll refine the process. But that is a big, and I think that there's greatest strength, greatest weakness, right? Because oftentimes what I'm learning now is, is I just, I'm 31 now. So my twenties were about go, like go hard, fast now, like, and, and that really served me. 
And my 30s are now about like being a little more deliberate, waiting a little bit, seeing, taking information, and then using that energy and that action a little more judiciously than I did in my 20s, just so that I'm being a little more refined and deliberate because I don't have as much energy, you know? So I can't just go hard all the time. It's not going to work. So it's not going to serve me in my later years. And so, but what I was getting at was that I think that a lot of people that I run into who are starting ventures, they don't move fast enough. That's a lot of people's problem is they're just not willing. They just analysis paralysis. They want to get everything perfect before they start. And like, I'm out there buying traffic, you know, I'm out there getting visibility. I'm out there making it happen and then like making things better as I go. And that has really served me well, being very action-oriented. No, I love it. So what we're going to do, I'm going to leave you there for a second. I want to paint the visual so I get this. So you're listening today. You're going through the journey. You know, talking to Ezra reminds me of watching Iron Man and seeing the Mandarin, Ben Kingsley, you know, and then I see, I feel Gandhi too. I'm sitting here surrounded by somebody whose life's mission is to master skills. And one of the things we were talking about is going through a process of, you're never really there. You're just working on getting better and learning from what's going on around you and being okay with improving communication so that you communicate effectively. And what you're looking to do is to achieve data in a lot of ways. Once we understand data, we can figure out what we can do with it. Traditionally, so many people just put an ad up and hope that it converts. And what I love, and we're going to continue when we get back with Ezra in just a moment, is the the ability to even dissect even more and to build a better journey and a better customer experience. And I got the ace in the river coming up with you when we return with Ezra Firestone. Are you suffering from marketing dysfunction? Are you not able to perform online as well as you could when you were younger? Unable to keep up with the intimate demands of buying product, running offers, and shipping items to your customers? Say hello to ShipOffers, clinically proven to enhance the growth and longevity of your business. Get some today at ShipOffers.com. My name is Tony Grubmeyer. We're back on Be Fulfilled. It's the real stories behind success. And we are talking today to Ezra Firestone. He's got two seven-figure businesses, now got an eight-figure business, talking about Boom Cosmetics, his Shopify app creation company, Zipify. We're literally going to unpack so much on our journey down Success Mountain. But the one thing that I just sit here in awe of just talking to him is just this wealth of knowledge that you are unleashing on us today. And really, it came from your very big opening statement. And when we unpack that even more, it's just about communication, being effective, asking the right questions, figuring out what you want, then what are you willing to kind of do to get it? right? And I'm going to go back all the way to the energy and the water and the community that you were talking about. Like it went out and you said, I'll figure that out. Like, I want to know where did that come from inside of you? Pure frustration or tired of not having any water and not having any energy at night? I think that it looked like fun. You know, I've always like done what looked like the most fun. I think everyone does this and then they justify their actions. People, this was something I wanted to bring up earlier. People make decisions based on the best information that they have at the time. Later, they then get better information and then negatively judge their past decisions, not realizing that those decisions were made with a different set of information. It's never a good strategy or winning cycle to look back on decisions that you made and then find yourself wrong for having made them, right? You can say, oh man, I got this new information and now I'm going to make new decisions, but to beat yourself up over decisions that you made it's not actually a profitable cycle unless it's going to result in you making different decisions now, but usually it doesn't, right? It's usually just like mental masturbation. So I think that what we're all doing is chasing whatever we think looks like the most fun or whatever we think. And by the way, when I say responsible hedonist, for me, 
what that means, people, hedonism has a negative connotation. Oh, you're just going to go out there and just eat McDonald's and party all night and drink and do whatever you want. And it's like, okay, I don't drink, first of all, although I'm not anti-drinking. I might have a margarita here and there, but it's just not my stimulant that I engage with. But I think that for me, pleasure includes a healthy body. Pleasure includes the ability to take care of the people around me. Pleasure includes taking a look at my life and where I feel like I'm doing well and where I feel like I'm not doing well and looking to improve that. Like pleasure is inclusive of every emotion, right? Because actually you don't want a life without pain because then you wouldn't know what pleasure was. You don't want a life without sadness because then you wouldn't know what happiness was. That actually human beings want the entire emotional spectrum. And you know what's fascinating about that is people like to blame their emotional state on outside stimuli. But then you stick someone in solitary confinement and they have basically the same set of emotional experiences. They're turned on by the doorknob. They're pissed off at the wall. Like you tend to have a similar, you tend to have a range of emotional experience that you go through. And if you do not deliberately modify that yourself, you're never going to change it, right? If you're constantly pissed off at stuff, that's a choice. You're making that choice to feel those emotions all the time. You are deciding that that is how you're going to get a cheap thrill. That's how you're going to spend your time. And since we do want emotional experience, it tends to be that when people stop having things that give them emotional experiences, they die, right? You stick around for the ride. And the ride is really the emotional experiences that you're going through. And so you might as well be deliberate about setting those up. It's why I put as much attention and deliberacy into my relationship as I do my business, if not more. I want to be intentional and deliberate about having it go well. I want to set up times to have fun. You know what I mean? I don't want to just be shackled to these work cycles, even though I love my work cycles. I wouldn't love them if I wasn't having fun outside of them. So I think that pleasure includes a balanced life. And actually, you're more effective in your work life if you have hobbies and interests and relationships and things like that. Yeah, you were talking and then, you know, kind of getting ready for the interview today. I was at smartmarketer.com and learning a little bit about what the logo means, right? You even got some stuff around the logo and how does it all kind of come together? And it talks about the balance of three things, you know, business relationships and then the self. You got a cool routine that kind of you fall into every day when you wake up and go about your day. Do you have a practice that you fall into? I do. I, it changes. I think one of the things about routine is that routines are meant to be broken. One of the fun things about routine is breaking it and then getting back on it and changing it up. And so I like routine in doses. <laughs> so I, I, have a, I have a routine that I follow like when I'm not traveling, which is a couple days a week, maybe like three or four days a week, I'll wake up, have a glass of water and then go do a, a little workout. I got a home gym. And sometimes I'll have a Skype personal trainer Skype in and give me some personal training advice. Other times I'll just do stretches and whatever. And then I'll go up and I'll make my coffee. Coffee is kind of, I drink one double espresso a day. It's my sort of, uh, it's a stimulant that I really enjoy. And so, but I like the ritual of it. So I grind my own beans and I tamp them down and I pull my espresso shot and I I smell it and I taste it. And then I steam my, so I have a whole ritual that feels, that's really fun. And I'm sort of addicted to this ritual. And then I'll have breakfast with my wife and then I'll start engaging in whatever my work cycles are. Sometimes we'll throw in a little 15, 20 minute meditation, sometimes not, but mostly it's like, get up drink a little water, move, enjoy some food and beverage, and then get started. It's kind of like our little system. Yeah. And it sounds like you're present throughout the entire process. Like if smelling the beans, grinding them, doing all those things, otherwise you set it all on automatic and you just go and you put your cup under the spigot and you just get coffee and you walk on your day. You were intentional with your moments of like, all right, 
there's a process and I'm enjoying it. I want to be in my body. I want to feel my muscles and ligaments and tendons. I want to see where I'm at energetically before I get started for the day. It feels really good. Even if I don't work out, I always do like 10 minutes of like, just like, where am I? How do I feel? Move my shoulders around. You know what I mean? Just come into my body. And I find that it's so cliche in the like new spiritual world to be like, be in your body, man. But like, it also works, you know, I don't know. You said that the thing that I just, it just hit me like it was my epiphany. I was like sitting here. He's like, so when my father, you know, passed in his seventies, he Alzheimer's and dementia. And a lot of people, when they retire and they stop working, they seem to get old and fragile and then they die really quick. Yeah, man. And I had a grandfather who lived to 93 and stopped working at 90. He was an assistant brain surgeon. And there was something about what you just said that I was like, got it. Have fun doing what you love, do more of it, find new ways to kind of, you know, enjoy it. Yeah. Because I mean, your whole world is in your head. You only are there. That's it. That's what you got. What you're, and you know, one of the beautiful things that I like to tell people that I think is a really, um, we're really lucky to be alive at this time is we have so much agency in our life because we get to choose what we perceive for the most part. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably have a lot of discretion in where you put your attention. Therefore, you're getting to choose what you perceive. Now, you might feel like you are victimized to the degree that you have to have some shitty job you don't like. I mean, that's very common, right? (laughs) Right on. But for the other 40 hours or 80 hours a week that you're awake, you get to choose where you're putting your attention. Then you ultimately get to decide whether or not what you perceived was good or bad. You are the value judgment maker. You get to decide whether or not this experience you had was good or bad. That's your choice. You are responsible for your emotional state and how you judge the perceptions that you're having. You get to do that. It's like, it actually, when you think about it, you can't think of a better deal. Okay. First I get to decide what I'm going to perceive. And then I get to decide whether or not what I perceived was good or bad. I mean, it's a lot of freedom if you're willing to take that much responsibility for your life. And the people, you know, they say with great power comes great responsibility, but it's actually the opposite. With great responsibility comes great power. The more responsibility you're willing to take, the more power and agency you have in your life. I'm willing to take responsibility for 70 people's salary. Therefore, I get the power of 70 people's workdays every day, right? It's a lot of responsibility to take, but it affords me a lot of power. That's just one example in the work world, but it works the same way in your life, man. Yeah. And taking that ownership too, and actually knowing what you want. A couple things that just pop into mind. I want to know a little bit about where boom came from. I've heard stories throughout my life of where boom came from. So I thought, let's just ask really quick. And then how you built this into just a massive empire. So boom is the birth child of my friendship with a woman named Cindy Joseph. She was a makeup artist to the supermodels of the eighties. She made up Cameron Diaz and Naomi Campbell and this and that. And when she was 49 years old, she grew out her silver hair. And the day she cut off the last of her hair dye, she was approached on the street by a modeling a- or a casting agent asking her to be in a Dolce & Gabbana campaign. And she thought they were just messing with her, but she took the picture and she booked the campaign. And this was at a time, this was now 15 years ago, at a time when advertisers were realizing that baby boomers had all the discretionary income and that baby boomers would be, that they wanted to see themselves represented in ads. So she kind of became the informal face of the baby boomer generation. She was in all the JGL catalogs. She was on billboards in Times Square. And she was a friend of my family. She would take these courses that were taught at this community where I grew up, you know, courses on like relationship and stuff like that. And I became buddies with her. And when I wanted to move to New York to play poker, I was like, Hey, can I move in with you? And she said, yes. So I'd lived with her and I played poker at night and we were just friends, you know, and 
And I kind of was learning about e-commerce and I was like, man, I want a product line. And, you know, we would have conversations about the experience of being a young man in society, the experience of being an older woman in society. And I was like, look, dude, you were a makeup artist. Now you're a supermodel. Like, let's do a cosmetic line. And that's kind of how it was born. And then the way that it was popularized was through paid advertising and content. So my viewpoint is that at least every business that I have follows the same model. Literally, I have information publishing business that'll do 5 million this year. I got a software as a service business that'll do 2 million this year. I got Boom by Cindy Joseph that'll do 20 some odd. I got Be Friendly. It's an Amazon brand. It'll do about 2 million. So every business follows the same model. I find a group of people who are having what I label a collective experience. And that is a group of people who are sharing similar experiences. So women over 50 in America who are aging and everyone telling them that's bad. For Zipify, it's like people who own Shopify stores who would like those things to do better, right? So you have a group of people who are sharing a collective experience. Then I use content to comment on that experience and add value to their life. And I put that out in front of them through paid ads. And then they subscribe by watching a video, visiting an article, liking my fan page, giving me their email address. They subscribe in some way. And then once they're a subscriber, I make them an offer that I think is relevant. And with Boom, one video, one article, one offer page has been worth $50 million. You don't need a lot of content. You just need a piece of content that comments on the experience that this group of people is having that resonates, that has them be like, yes, I am having this experience and then alludes to a solution you have, which is your product. So I have five makeup tips for women over 50. And then it's like, hey, if you're over 50, like you shouldn't be using as much foundation. If you're over 50, like here's what you want to do for your cheek color, whatever. And then it's like, oh, by the way, here's this cool cosmetic line that is all about, you know, is all for women over 50. Check it out. And then they go click to check it out. For Zipify, it's like, hey, here's six strategies I use to increase my average order value on my Shopify store. And then it goes through them. It's all stuff you could take away and use without buying whatever I have to offer you. So it's all valuable and interesting and good for the person who's having that experience. And then I'm like, hey, if you want to make this easier, this piece of software is what we use to implement all this. Check it out. So now they're chasing the offer. I'm not saying buy this thing. I'm saying, here's some cool stuff. Check it out. And they're like, oh, this is awesome. They read it. And then I allude to a solution, which is my product. Yeah, I mean... And you went back in the beginning, you were talking about, I think we just make everything more complicated than it really needs to be, right? Test, throw up something and then learn from it and keep, you know, the iterations just keep coming and coming and coming. Three assets every business should have today is a video for Facebook that entertains, educates, and gets someone to click on it so they can go to an article page. An article that is insightful, useful, and also relevant sort of, you know, talks about the problem that the customer is facing and then a product that solves the problem that the article alludes to. That's it's my whole, this is my big shtick for all my business. That's all I do. I have a video that gets people's attention and gets them to go over to an article. I have an article that's interesting and that talks about a problem that they're facing. And then I have a sales page that like sells them on a solution for that problem. And this is my hustle. It works. Boy, yeah, like we don't have to make it any more complicated than that. You got a perfect formula. I mean, it's nuanced. Okay. You got to know how to target people and you got to understand how to set up retargeting and you got to test a couple articles and you might got to test a couple sales videos. I mean, there's some nuance there, but like the general structure really is just that. I love it. Ladies and gentlemen, what we're going to do is we're going to shift Ezra into what I like to call some position in Brazilian Jitsu. He's going to figure out if it's going to take me out or he's going to let me play for a few minutes. We're going to get into the fulfillment round with you, Ezra. We're going to have some fun. All I ask is you can't phone a friend. You can't scream out for your wife. You cannot use any source of medium other than what you said is the one thing you carry around with you wherever you go is your brain. Oh, it's no. called the fulfillment round. But first, before I go any further, thank you. It's been awesome, man. It's unpacking some time with you today has been super helpful and educational. And I believe everybody who's listening is getting tons of value. Thanks, man. I love this kind of stuff. All right. So the fulfillment round is just a bunch of random questions, kind of some things that I'd like to know. And hopefully the audience will find it helpful. 
um, to get to know you. So if you're ready, say you're ready. I am ready for the right, fulfillment round. First question for you. I want to take you back to the community. You're there, no energy, no water, no food. Uh, something happened, right, in the moment. We did have food. but yeah. And you needed to go figure out for food. What would be the meal of choice you would need? I mean, I always, at that time, I was a fruit guy. I just loved mango. I grew up in Hawaii part-time as well, so mangoes and guavas and lilikoi and coconut and just all the Hawaii fruits, star fruit, you know what I mean? All the local kind Hawaii fruit was like what I was all about. If I could get a fruit platter, I was stoked, man. So today, you get a chance to have something into your body in the fruit. What would be like your first go-to? For fruit right now? Regardless of the season. Just I get one piece of fruit right now. Strawberries. Okay. Oh, dude, local black, any kind of berries, man. I'm just so into berries. It's crazy. Local blackberries. I'm a big mango fan too, but oh, good. Pe- I do not know. A warm peach, man, in upstate New York, stuff grows. Peaches grow, cherries grow, berries grow. I mean, it's just like, we have the best fruit up here. So did you I ever can your own jam growing up? I did. Yeah. I can blackberry jam quite a lot. Loved it. Oh my God. Put them in those like bell mason jars, right? Yeah. Although I grew up in California mostly. So that's where we had the blackberries. Yeah, we would, we'd mix a whole bunch of sugar with blackberries, put them in those mason jars, wax them down the whole nine. You know, it was really cool. I love it. Where did you and your wife meet? We met in a yoga class. She was my yoga teacher. So when I quit poker, I was like, man, I got to go meet some girls who are going to be like, where am I going to find women? And I was like, yoga for sure. And this was at a time when a lot of dudes weren't doing yoga. We're talking 05, you know, 06, 07. So it wasn't like yoga had not really penetrated the mainstream quite yet, kind of has over the last decade or 15 years. And so I was quite fortunate to be one of the like sort of only, I was the only young man in there for sure. There were some older dudes, but no young men. So she was my yoga teacher. She has a great slogan on the co-founder page. It says, I do whatever needs to be done until we hire someone to take over. But most importantly, I keep a continuous conversation with Ezra about the inner workings and the direction of our company. Yeah, she's the moral compass, you know, and also just kind of the, I mean, when I say moral compass, it's not because I would do anything immoral, but it's because like, especially in my younger years, I would play the gray area line quite a bit. And like, I think that hungry people do funny things. And when you're hungry and you feel pain of not having enough, you're willing to stretch your boundaries of what you think is okay. And then once you have made it and you're no longer hungry and you're comfortable, you then look back on some of the decisions you made and think, ah, you know, maybe that was a stretch about whether or not that was okay, you know? And so, especially in the early part of our business, she would definitely hold the moral line. And yeah, I mean, I think our whole our whole relationship is an ongoing conversation that we've been in now for over a decade. And she really has a good intuitive sense of like, people and who we should or shouldn't be doing business with and what would be a good or not good direction. She's really good at that. Biggest difference between 21 and 31. Um, boy, 21 and 31. 21, I was much more concerned with what people thought of me. 31, I'm much less concerned with what people think of me. I still care about how I'm perceived, but that is no longer a motivating factor for my actions the way that it was in my youth. If your wife's sitting in front of you watching this, what would be something of like importance that you would want her to know about you that maybe she didn't know? Um, boy, I feel like we've kind of, we've been real deep. So I think she knows me better than just about anyone at this point. Well, the thing that she learned about me recently is that I really like to rent trucks, fill them with things and drive them around. <laughs> I like driving, fill a truck with some stuff and drive it somewhere, man. She's like, have you lost your mind? We can get people to do that. And I'm like, no, listen, you don't understand. As a man, I must fill this truck with some shit and take it from one place to another and unload it and lift a heavy object. I mean, it's just like, you don't, you do not get how fulfilling this cycle is. Okay. This is really cool. So I actually want to buy a truck now after this move. I'm like, I'm buying a truck. I want to move shit around more. 
Yeah, there's got to be something fun. Let's talk a little bit about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. White belt for over 18 years. It looks like um, (laughs) some fun stuff there. Tell me a little bit about you. Tell me a little bit about Brazilian. So, you know, for me, I actually started in judo when I was four years old. I did judo all the way. I mean, I still do judo, but not like competitively. I did judo competitively my entire childhood. I took my first jiu-jitsu class from David Terrell, who was Caesar Gracie's first black belt in, I want to say, 1997. Big shout out to Dave Terrell. I still think probably one of the greatest grapplers to ever live. And yeah, so I did jiu-jitsu for three or four years with him. And you know, when you're a kid, you can't get a blue belt. So I think I got a yellow belt from David Terrell. And then when I, you know, I moved to New York at 18. And so I stopped doing jiu-jitsu in high school just because I was trying to like chase girls and I didn't think it was cool anymore, but I still did judo. And then over the last you know, decade in New York, I kind of maybe did it once or twice a year. And then now for the last two or three years, I've been training very heavily a couple times a week. And I think that I probably hold the record of longest white belt, you know, 18 years, the white belt's pretty long recently was promoted to blue belt back in 2015, I want to say, or 2016. So what I think what's cool about grappling and really any martial art or, you know, intense sport, but in particular Brazilian jiu-jitsu is you are put in extremely uncomfortable positions. And then the way to navigate your way out of those positions is not to constrict and not to get angry, and it's to relax. You're taught to relax in extreme discomfort Mm. and navigate under pressure and ride the wave of pressure. And it's really been such a beneficial, my whole life, it's been such a beneficial, you know, I can find myself on the mats. I can find humility on the mats. I can, there's no one to help me. It's me and this sea of experience. And I just think it's a really, I think any practice like that is good for a person. And my practice happens to be grappling. I like that. So less like trying to like, I'm sitting here getting the visual because like, you know, if like the pressure's being applied, our first thing to do is try to fight it, right? And you're to be at peace with the pressure and then to almost find your release and get out. Yeah. And, and move that pressure deliberately. And like, sometimes you respond to force with force, but in general, that strategy is not the best one responding to force with moving that force in a different direction is a better strategy, right? So it's kind of like the old, you know, judo is actually translates to the gentle way. It's about redirecting someone's force, right? Force is coming at you and you direct it in a different direction. I'm a big fan, man. I love it. All right. So I got two more questions, but this one, this one's going to be a stretch for me. New about 21, now 31. What would communication be like for you at 41? Email, letter, mail, Tell me a little bit about what do you think your communication, the world's communication will be at 41 if I wanted to get in touch with you? I think that we're going to see a big resurgence in sort of walkie-talkie style communication. So immediate voice to voice, press a button, now you're voice activated to someone. I think that's coming back. I wonder about holographic communication. I don't think it's really coming. I think that basically within the next 10 years, this rise of, I think the way that we do text messaging, we'll do voice. Voice communication will be as seamless as texting because right now we got to use our thumbs and it's, you know, we're going to be able to just use our voices and the communication will travel across space and time to the intended target in the way that text currently does. So if you and and a friend are communicating. I think that wearable technology will be at a stage where everybody will be using it. You'll have a bracelet that drops down your phone onto your wrist. You'll have a pair of glasses or an earbud that's constantly either, uh, I think, the merging of the digital and physical worlds will be at a stage where it'll be mass market. 80% of people will be experiencing augmented reality at all times, right? You'll be driving in your car, riding your bike, and you'll have an overlay over the physical world of directions and communications and things like that. 
that is certainly the next. We're going to become cyborgs, dude. Uh, it's it is said that you know humans are the sex organs of the machine world, right? So like this is the start of that. If you if you subscribe to that viewpoint, I don't know if I do, but I definitely subscribe to the viewpoint that wearable technology will become the norm. No, I love it, and I relate. I think I'm in for the shock and surprise. But the last question for you: It's simple. Star Trek or Star Wars? Well, Star Wars, dude. Okay, favorite character. Uh, you relate to best. Well, I mean, just because I never watched Star Trek, although I did watch this one movie that was really funny with like Tim Allen about some space people. Oh yeah, I remember that. I What's forget that what it was. Is, uh, he's like they're like a fake Star Trek group of people, and he's like the hero, and then they beca- it becomes real. Anyways, I thought that was cooler than both Star Trek and Star Wars. But in Star Wars, I like the little green guy. Man, he's always talking some good shit. You know. Why can't I remember this name? Not Yoda. Buddha. Yoda. Yoda. That guy. That's my guy, man. Come on. That's the guy. That's the guy. You mm-hmm. like. Strong, of course you are, Ezra. Thank you for your input today. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. Hey, I just want to say it's been an honor. I take notes. So I've got tons of notes. I've got stuff in front of me. And today was just filled with so much. I feel like you brought the boom. I learned a little bit about you at a deeper level. I learned about your wife, your connection, the importance of communication. I realized that if I'm not having fun, I'm doing it wrong. And I need to find what fun looks like in my life and have more of it, but also be smart. You delivered the goods on kind of your three-step with a great video for Facebook, a really impactful article and some product to go with it. You know, there's tons of insight the audience is going to get. We're going to put it all in the show notes for you from smartermarketer.com, from Boom Cosmetics to your Zipify product. Just want to say thank you very much. Hey, man. Thank you so much. Thanks for giving me the platform to express. You're a rock star, in my opinion. And, and certainly, I am better for our conversation today, for knowing you and what you do for the world and everybody around you. You know, I, we talk, it's not about money. It's really about relations and connections and community. And I feel like today you spoke really clear of those things to my audience. So thank you for that again. Thanks, man. I mean, money is a helpful tool for sure. I'm not anti-money. I'm obviously pro-wealth creation, but not at the expense of your pleasure. And, and like, I think that, man, you know, I think the study that came out from Harvard, I believe it was, was like after in this society, after about 75 grand, you don't get any happier, right? So I think there's like, you know, money will buy you comfort for sure. But to chase it as the goal and then find yourself empty when you get it is a common experience. Like why make that mistake, man? Ladies and gentlemen, all the way up until the end, Ezra delivered the goods today. My name is Tony Grubmeyer. It's been another episode of Be Fulfilled. It's the real stories behind success. And until next time, no matter where you go, no matter what you do, make today the best day of your life. Thanks for listening to today's show. But before you go, let me ask you a question. How would you like to be the architect of your journey in this game we call life? Take the next step now at trainersanddrivers.com and download my free mini course designed to give you more clarity and freedom in your day. It might just change your life forever. Forever.